I, I very much believe in the elimination targets that we have by 2030 as something that we should take as not just inspirational targets, but as real targets. In 2001, Gottfried Hernschel joined the WHO. He was there to work on the global response to HIV AIDS. 18 years later, he just retired as director of the WHO's department for HIV and hepatitis. The intervening period, almost half the time we've been aware of the disease, the fight against the infection has been characterized by scientific breakthroughs and then scientific disappointments. But the people mobilized against the virus have changed the way the world funds global health, the way patients are included in drug development and save millions of lives. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And in this interview, I spoke to Gottfried during his post-retirement holiday in France and asked him about his experience and what the legacy of the HIV AIDS movement will be. Well, I'm Gottfried Hernschel. Um, most people actually rather know my first than my last name, Gottfried. Uh, and I, um, I'm just uh, finished working in WHO uh, a month ago. Uh, I have been uh, directing the, the HIV department, actually it's the HIV and hepatitis department, uh, since 2010, uh, based in Geneva. And I was uh, in, in, in a range of different capacities working in WHO also um, in, in the HIV field. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming from the child health, uh, very much from the child health field where I've been working before uh, in WHO and, and, and in other places. Um, so that's a bit my 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 very quickly my my, my overall career, and I've been certainly driven uh, over my work period in WHO and before in terms of uh, trying to bring what I would call health equity uh, when it comes to individuals, when it comes to groups of people, but when it also comes to different parts of the world, different countries. This has certainly been. Uh, the, seeing the inequities that continue to exist, and, and they have existed all along. Uh, however, where the HIV movement has been an important element to 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 to, to address some of that, uh, has certainly been uh, sort of the motor behind my my personal energy and my personal commitment to do as much as we can to to improve that situation. Great, thank you. Well, well, we'll be very interested to hear about that. And as someone who's been working uh, within the field for so long, what I wanted to talk to you about was this kind of long view, really. And with that in mind, if we kind of turn right back to the start of the, the HIV um, AIDS epidemic, uh, in 1981, the CDC pulled together various reports of young men who had a rare lung condition um, in LA and then in New York there were, were suddenly um, people with Kaposi's sarcoma. So by the end of that year there'd been over 300 cases of what we now know to be AIDS and and already 130 deaths in the US alone. So 
In retrospect, was that actually the start of the HIV-AIDS epidemic? Well, I think uh, clearly it was the beginning of the HIV epidemic, uh, but also it was the beginning of the uh, HIV movement, I, I would call it. And uh, and uh, uh, it, 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 it was then when, when, the, the, when the news hit the world uh, that uh, this was a wake-up call not only in the U.S., but it certainly was in Europe uh, and in, in a few other parts of the world, primarily in the, in, in the, in the high-income countries. And unfortunately, only much later in, 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 in the, uh, I would say, low-income countries or other parts, parts of the world. But clearly, already back then, sort of the the activist movement and very much driven by sort of the gay activists at that time uh, at, 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 at the very beginning was 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 very was very critical to 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 draw attention to something that really became a pandemic uh, not so much later. Mm. And at that point, you know, it was very much uh, seen as being a gay disease. It was seen as being um, well, it was unknown. There was a lot of fear around it. Um, and it wasn't until, what, 1985 that HIV, the virus, was actually confirmed to be this causative agent. In that, that time between 81 and, and 85, it must have been a, a terrifying period for people. Uh, actually, it, it, it clearly was. And, and I wasn't working in HIV at that time myself, but I've been uh, seeing it, and I've lived parts of that time in, in, in the United States also, and, and, and it was a very terrifying, terrifying moment because nobody knew where it was coming from, how it was transmitted. Uh, nobody knew that ultimately it, it, it will uh, develop into AIDS. There was some speculation that in 10% of the cases of infected people it could uh, progress to AIDS, then it was 50%, then it was 90%, and then and then it was more fully understood what what the, the causative agent is or was and, 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 and what the cause of the disease is. So yes, it was very terrifying and, and, and I think uh, it, 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 it was uh, really, it was a death sentence and, uh, and people only gradually un understood that. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, it was also, it, it took some time to understand sort of uh, how quickly it spread and how it actually had become a pandemic in Europe and in other parts of the world and also ultimately uh, in Africa, etc. Mm. And I mentioned there that, you know, those, the, the genome of the virus had been sequenced and that was an incredible breakthrough at the time. You know, this is 85, this is when, you know, Absolutely. this is still mm. early. And at that point, once that sequence had been done, there were several sites on the, the virus that uh, were sort of thought to be, you know, places where we could have therapeutic intervention. And it actually, uh, that seemed like it would be... Uh, you know, we've got this, we understand how this works now, and we'll get a handle on this disease soon. That turned out not to be the case, though. Well, absolutely not. I mean, um, uh, well, there, there were elements of optimism and pessimism right from the beginning, the way I understand it, uh, looking back. But uh, but obviously, uh, the whole, we, we are now more than 35 years later, more than 35 years later, and, uh, and uh, we still don't have... A vaccine. We still don't have a cure. We obviously have very good uh, 
intellectual virals that help us to treat. Uh, we have a fairly good uh, preventive interventions uh, that we know that work, even though they are not consistently mm. used. But uh, but but clearly, in 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 those early days, there were some optimists and there were some pessimists to start with, and uh, and and there have been ups and downs ever since. And one of those points of optimism was the um, was in eighty seven the first uh, drug was approved for treatment of it was the uh, antiretroviral AZT. Um, that treatment at the, that time did it offer real hope because we now know that it is quite toxic. There are there are lots of people that can't take the the drug for various reasons. But at that time, do you think it was uh, one of of particular hope? It was an incredible hope, and, and I remember I had a very good friend who 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 whom, whom I met and who told me, "Wow, I'm now on this drug that's going to cure me, that's going to save me," and uh, and and it was ACT, and unfortunately, and obviously. Uh, he, he he died not not so much later, but but that was the beginning of the era of antiretroviral therapy, and uh, and and obviously much more needed to be developed, much more needed to be understood, but that was uh, turning around the whole paradigm of there's nothing we can do about it. Why should we even get tested? That was what a lot of people said. I don't even want to know uh, because there's nothing that can help me, where then people said, wow, there is now a drug that could save me. So now there's an incentive for getting tested. And I think that has characterized, uh, I think, the movement ever since. Mm. And that's interesting, given that testing is, is such a big part of our you know, plans to, to combat uh, HIV these days. Um, 1987, that's when AZT came in. Now, that was also a big year because that was the formation of ACT UP. The pressure group who really changed the way that um, the FDA, you know, allowed drugs to to become available to patients, how drugs companies shared data, um, and how people were involved in sort of trial design and and things. And I wonder, you know, these are all things that we still uh, ask for. Uh, we're still campaigning for that in the BMJ. Um, act ups work then how much do you think it really changed the way in which um the research community sort of viewed patients was it only sort of changing uh the the way they worked to uh to accommodate people or did they really win over hearts and and fundamentally change um attitudes towards patients and research within the hiv community do you think well, ACTUP was absolutely critical, and 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 other other activist organizations that followed, uh, in 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 changing the minds in many ways, and and it's it's it was the minds of researchers, and the minds of of those who put money to fund research, uh, the mind of uh, of, of politicians, etc. I I really think, uh, without ACTUP and others. Uh, we would not be where we are. We would have never had that whole uh, solidarity movement that, that uh, years later actually uh, uh, developed and, and, and that, that, that we are still uh, seeing now. Uh, we would not have seen the government responses that, uh, that we ultimately saw because of the pressure of, of, of activist groups. And we certainly wouldn't have seen the investments in research and and the approach to to 
to doing research. So I I I, I really uh, think that has been at the heart and at the core and at the beginning of of the of the HIV movement that that we have seen and has been a major element and a major driver right from the start. Mm. And you know the work paid off. It was very quickly after um, then that that you know people were able to start accessing the new protease inhibitors uh, that, that that came out in a way that they wouldn't have been able to. Um, uh, without the work of those those activist groups and mm. and those protease inhibitors are still a fundamental part of our kind of armory against uh, HIV. Um, I wonder if you could sort of take us through uh, a little bit about um, what's changed in terms of of treatment since those first protease inhibitors came in. How are they being um, used, or have we got new classes of drugs? Uh, you know, could you give us a quick overview of, of how that's changed? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, we have many more drugs. Uh, if we compare it, for example, to other diseases like tuberculosis, uh, and that's one of the, the, the big questions that some people ask is how how come? And that's also, again, in response to, to sort of what you, your previous question, what was the role of activists, uh, ACT UP and others? Uh, uh, that so many investments have been made in drug development in, in HIV. Uh, and of course, it's a big business, but also it, it required some invest upfront investments into research. And that hasn't been so in other areas, specifically in other communicable diseases, you name it, TB, malaria and others. Uh, and, and so we have many more. Uh, we have many more classes and we know that we need to combine drugs so that we have the op- optimal um, uh, efficacy of, of, of the drugs and the, the optimal um, health outcomes. Uh, so we are still talking about combination therapy. We are still talking about triple therapy, even though there is now research ongoing to see whether it could be less than three drugs that could have similar effects. So there seem to be some, some promising, um, some promising uh, possibilities in that regard to simplify treatment even further. The drugs are much better uh, in a way. They are much less toxic. We had some some very toxic drugs that had very, very, very dramatic side effects uh, on, 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 on the patients, as we all know. Uh, uh, disfiguring and, and, and the severe anemia, et cetera, et cetera, many other side effects. So we have we have much more tolerable drugs uh, that that can be uh, with very limited side effects uh, to 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 the people. We also have drugs that have become that are still quite expensive and to a large extent patent protected in in uh, in the developed world, but that, that that have become so much cheaper in uh, in uh, the the uh, less developed countries in uh, in in in. in uh, uh, particularly in lower middle and 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 and, and, and lower income countries, uh, and that in fact have become very very cheap. And again, that is one of the uniqueness of what of, of, of the HIV movement. And again, because of the the activist outcry that we have seen, and also organizations like WHO, I have to say that really put very brave targets like three by five uh, uh, up front to sort of say we can no longer tolerate that. 
that these drugs are not available to people who live in in in, in poorer countries, uh, and 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 that there is only reserved for people who live in rich countries, so to speak. So these drugs have become very uh, affordable, I would say, uh, for governments to provide it to their citizens. In many instances, for free these days, but also for to, for for individuals where they have to make a co-parent payment, etc. So. Mm. All this to say, we now also have drugs and dolotegravir. There was a lot of discussion on on, on integrase inhibitors and dolotegravir uh, lately on on uh, what side effect it may have, particularly during pregnancy, and and how how safe is it to give it also to pregnant women. We are now much more confident. Uh, and WHO has just released the latest guidelines at the IS conference in Mexico, where we know it's. Uh, uh, the signals that we have seen in early research may not be that 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 frightening and and that strong. So so it's quite safe also to give uh, to give to pregnant women and adolescents and adults. Mm. So so we are really seeing that uh, these drugs are also le- more robust. That means more like less likely to create uh, drug um, uh, drug resistance. So we are in a good spot right now. Uh, with 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 uh, antiretroviral drugs, but still they need to be taken lifelong. Uh, they are still not they still cost, uh, and and they still need to be produced. So uh, we still hope that there's something else that's going to come. That there's additional innovation that is is in the pipeline that will have an, a programmatic impact uh, over the next few years to 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 make it even more likely uh, and and more easy. To, to to reach elimination in communities in countries globally, mm. and uh, we'll we'll get on to that in a, a little bit because I think that's really well. Obviously, it's super important to talk about. Mm. Um, but I wanted to take you back then to two thousand and one when you, you you really started in this field. You know, so if we draw a picture of then we have we have effective a treatment by this point. But as you say, they, they were incredibly expensive and, and limited to uh, to certain parts of the world. So I wondered, when you first started um, in the field, what what were your aims? What did you, you think really needed to be tackled at that point? Well, one of the things that was very clear is that uh, the notion or the paradigm that was widely accepted that these drugs are simply too expensive and even they were said too complicated to be used in 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 resource constrained settings is is not possible therefore it's reserved to people in uh, the us europe australia and and, and, and comparable countries high income countries basically uh, that to challenge that paradigm was absolutely critical and and that's what i felt personally uh, and I started in 2001 in 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 the HIV department in WHO, which was just about um, to be rebuilt after there was a very small department in in the previous years. WHO was basically picking up the ball where it had somewhat dropped it a few years ago. Mm. Uh, and 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 with the with the director general um, Dr. Lee, uh, really making this very unique decision to make a disease-specific target, the 3 by 5 getting 3 million people on treatment uh, in, in 2005, which was a, a three-year period, uh, was, was very brave. And it, it's 
some people felt that was never the right thing to do for an organization like WHO to be so disease specific, and that can be discussed. But certainly for the HIV movement, I think it was a very uh, important, decisive moment, really, really to have that that organization speak to that. And, and a country, Canada, put hundred million Canadian dollars in, in into into uh, funding some of the the costs that were needed to do that. That was a very unique moment, and it really led to a paradigm shift that I think was important then, but needs to be continued now. Mm. For example, you know, these new cancer drugs that are being developed, we, we, we completely accept it, that these are only available in, again, in high income countries. Palliative care, even some, 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 some other drugs that are more expensive, it, it, it's sort of accepted that these are not part of the um, essential medicines that need to be made available in, in, in lower income countries. And I think we need to challenge that paradigm and really need to learn from that experience how costs can be differentiated and costs can be brought down and intellectual property can be rights can be challenged, etc., which was so unique for HIV and, and which I think should be retained as, 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 as a as, in terms of the spirit and and and, and the activism, uh, much more broadly for for other medicines and drugs. Mm, definitely, and as you say, there was a paradigm shift that had to happen, and it did begin to happen. Um, and then in two thousand and three, uh, PEPFAR um, was launched, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So that released uh, a lot of money. Do you think that was a really significant change in in the global response to HIV? Uh, absolutely, and 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 PEPFAR was important then because it was the the largest, and it certainly continues to be the largest uh, bilateral contribution to 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 to, to HIV/AIDS uh, programs. But uh, but uh, it certainly was also politically very important that the U.S. came forward to do that, particularly as it has had a fairly um, controversial um, history within the U.S. in terms of not accepting the facts and, and, then, and then coming forward with PEPFAR. But when it comes to the resources, the billions of dollars that uh, the U.S. government ever since has put into this, uh, uh, in, into PEPFAR, clearly uh, it, is, uh, it, it, it is, has been critical in getting uh, programs in, in, in low and in middle income countries to, to where they are primarily middle in, 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 in lower income countries of course and and, and and politically as a signal that investments are needed to to get us closer to elimination mm. and um, with the new US administration there were there were great fears that um, a kind of more isolationist approach to uh, the world uh, kind of pulling back of that would affect things like PEPFAR and, and global funding for um, HIV AIDS uh, generally and would set us back. Have we seen that yet start to happen? Do you think that's that's still uh, an issue? Well, not to the extent that there was fears when uh, uh, when the latest U.S. president, uh, when Donald Trump, uh, came into office and, and, and sort of the rhetoric wasn't... Uh, was all making us all worry, of course. Uh, PEPFAR has sailed through the current administration, but uh, and, and and continues to be, as I said, uh, important to provide the resources, but also politically to set an example for others, 
to set to to put resources also into the global fund and to stimulate others, including certainly European and other countries, to 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 likewise uh, step up to the plate and and continue to fund the, the the HIV response. And some of the European countries have taken major steps back. So it, it that continues to be important. I am personally still nervous because we know these situations, despite the current positive uh, situation that we see can be very fragile and they can change and political decisions can be rewarded and, and, and there, there can be new decisions being made. And if indeed PEPFAR was uh, uh, much less funded, if the US would put much less money into the upcoming replenishment of the global fund, that would uh, be very detrimental because I think many of the countries wouldn't be very quickly prepared to fill those gaps. And it would also, again, have a political signal that might be followed by others uh, and that may just look elsewhere. So I think we are in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a critical, but also in a potentially fragile movement. I think we have to be on the alert and, 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 and I think looking into the future over the next few years, this is really what we need to prepare countries for to really uh, step up to the plate with domestic resources much more in some instances than they have in the past. Mm. And do you think, given that, you know, there's been a sort of paradigm shift in our understanding of of prevention, of spread of, of HIV, you know, now that um, it's kind of widely accepted that treatment does prevent this, that if you're uh, undetectable in your viral load, then, then you're not going to pass on um, the virus. You know, that's that's another hopeful message that uh, that countries can get a handle on these, on the infection, and uh, and you know protect their own population. Well, I think that's a, that's absolutely has been a strong incentive for individuals, but also for for countries to to step up their treatment programs uh, and 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 to ensure that people have access to uh, largely. Free uh, uh, antiretrovirals uh, and to to take them regularly to be 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 virally suppressed. So the U equals U um, initiative has has been quite important in in that regard. So the evidence has been there clearly. Uh, what we uh, need to be very careful about is that. It's not enough to get somebody started on, on antiretrovirals if this person doesn't stay on antivirals uh, and, and get sort of uh, the support to stay on, on antiretrovirals to be virally suppressed, because otherwise, obviously, the prevention effect is also not, not sustained. Mm. I wanted to ask you about um, U equals U. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that was a big thing to, to say. It was, what, 2008 when... Um, the Swiss statement came out and said that, uh, you know, if a person is on treatment and and undetectable, then they they won't pass on the the virus. At the time, that was seen as almost quite controversial. And was that a message that that you were nervous about broadcasting? Well, initially, of course, um, we, we the, the 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 evidence was accumulating, uh, scientific evidence. But also, we needed to see the programmatic evidence. What did it mean uh, in in real life situations? And 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 the worry that uh, we in WHO had is 
that if um, in a country where we know even viral load machines and viral load measurements are not available, how would somebody know whether he or she is virally suppressed? So it, to, to really make that message useful from a programmatic perspective in, 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 in those contexts, it needed to come along with those programmatic improvements and, 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 and those programmatic characteristics, I would say, to make it safe. So that was the approach that we took at WHO to say, well, you know, yes, the scientific evidence is there. Yes, it's, it's very important for the individual to say, if I am on treatment, I'm no longer, um, you know, infectious, so to speak. I can no longer be stigmatized based on, on that perception, etc. But, but from, a, from a public health perspective, we needed to make sure that all the other prerequisites were in place so that it programmatically had the impact that we wanted it to have. Mm. And I suppose that has an impact on, on, I suppose, the latest breakthrough in, in prevention, which is our understanding now of pre-exposure prophylaxis. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, the idea that, you know, you can treat with, well, at the moment, one drug, but it seems like um, others are on the horizon to prevent uh, someone um, seroconverting if they're exposed to the virus. So, uh, you know, how, where do you think... Um, where do you think we are with that in terms of turning this into to something that, that can be programmatic, that can be spread? Well, PrEP obviously is another breakthrough. And, uh, and, and clearly, ju- just to come back to the previous point, uh, while the effect of the prevention effect of, of, of high treatment coverage is there, it's important. We know it's not sufficient if we really want to uh, completely um, go get to very very low levels of of, of 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 new infections. We know we do need to have additional prevention interventions, and obviously we had the traditional ones of condoms, uh, male circumcision, etc. But with prep, we have another important um, interventions at hand. The problem with prep is, even though WHO has been recommending it for 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 quite a number of years now, in two thousand and 14, I think the first time we had the the the, the, the first recommendation, um, the 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 uptake um, has been relatively slow. We're estimating that uh, in 2018 there were about 300,000 people on prep, and and again a fairly large number of those are in in uh, in the U.S. and in some other um, high income countries, um, but. But we haven't quite seen the the the, the acceptance by governments of of, of, of purpose and intervention, and the willingness to, to pay for it, and and also the the, the willingness of, of, of individuals that uh, would benefit from it. In other words, people who have a high risk of transmission um, to take it. So much more can be done and needs to be done. We know it's an oral prep is an intervention that does work, but where we also see it requires uh, removal of barriers so that people can have it, can can get it, can take it. Uh, But also it requires a behavior change where people say, yes, I want to take this and and I do take that. And there's still a lot of um, new developments that can probably improve the acceptance of prep and and, then the easiness is easiness with which we, it can be taken, such in, in, in terms of on-demand prep, uh, 
moving towards oral to, from oral to injectables, uh, etc. So I think it's a it's it's a field that gets a lot of attention also from from the research community that is still rapidly expanding, but where we still have a lot to do to actually change policies in countries or work towards policy changes and then support the uptake of PrEP. Mm. Now, PrEP and treatment as prevention and good testing regimes is obviously really important in limiting the spread of the virus. One big hope for that over the years has been the creation of a, of a vaccine. And yet, here we are almost 40 years since the, the virus was sort of first identified and we, we still don't have one. Um, do you think that it's important to continue looking for a vaccine or, or should we now focus on treatment as prevention and perhaps uh, PrEP instead? No, well, I, I think that the, these things are not mutually exclusive. While we need to take the interventions that we know that work and are available to the largest scale possible, and that is exactly what you're saying, that's treatment, that's PrEP, that's other, that's, that's other interventions uh, that we know that work. Uh, I, I, we need to, the world needs to continue to invest in a cure uh, and in a preventive vaccine. And, and, and I think there have been some promising new uh, sort of insights just, just lately with, uh, with, new, with, with some trials that, that, that pointed in the right direction. I'm not a vaccine expert, so I, I, I'm not going to talk about the details. With a commitment to move towards a phase three trial that was just recently announced, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think we have come out of this sort of agony where, to, where, where there was a moment to say, well, you know, we, we simply don't seem to be able to develop a vaccine despite all the investments and the initial enthusiasm. Uh, but but now to say well you know there's 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 possibly new ways of of and, 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 and new new opportunities to look at that and and, and some new trials uh, being being done at this point so I think there there has been some some recent optimism uh, we need to the world needs to continue to take that very seriously invest in it and 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 I think ultimately that is what we will need if really really we want to fully get rid of rid of HIV, a cure and, and, and a vaccine. Mm. And um, as you say, you know, this prevents uh, vaccine. Everything we talk about is preventing spread, but people who are um, infected at the moment still face this, this lifetime of, of taking antiretrovirals to prevent uh, the development of AIDS. Um, we have seen big news stories uh, around the world of people who seem to have cleared infections for for various reasons and and there you you mentioned uh, a cure do you think we are anywhere near getting that well we 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 are we are not near getting that but i think uh there are um there are opportunities to, to, to look into that, like probably neutralizing antibodies, et cetera. There's, there's, there's different um, uh, approaches that are being explored and are being researched on. There's a Q initiative that's been uh, 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 trying to coordinate across the various uh, partner organization, uh, but it, 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 it's not to say, well, it's around the corner. I think it will it will will require more time, and I think we need to be prepared to continue again to to do 
to use w what we have, treatment um, and, and the prevention interventions that we have, and that, that includes PrEP, of course, uh, to, to, to refine them, to make them uh, more, more easily available in, in forms that are uh, more patient-friendly or more person-friendly uh, and easier to take. Uh, that's what we will have to be prepared for the next, um, I would think, five to ten years for sure. Mm. And, you know, the, the kind of uh, things that you mentioned there, the, the biologics that might be used to mm. actually create a cure, I mean, that could take us back right to where you started in, in 2001, where we end up with this this massive gap um, between people who can afford to take these treatments, governments that can afford to give them to their populations, and those who don't. Um, is that something that worries you? No, not at all. I mean, yes, it's certainly something we need to think about, but I don't think it should worry us because because uh, of, of 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 the the history and because of the evolution of the of the HIV movement, I think. Uh, we would have, we, we could recreate some of the momentum uh, that we've had uh, when antiretrovirals first became available and were reserved for the rich people. Uh, I think the same, the same logic would apply here and the same momentum, I believe, could be recreated. And, and the, some of the same mechanisms to bring the prices down uh, in, in, in those places that could otherwise not afford it uh, should, be, should be considered. So, yes, I think that will be uh, certainly something that will become an issue, but not one that we shouldn't be able to tackle with, mm. having learned from the past. And in the UK now, um, our health secretary uh, recently announced that he has an ambition that uh, we will see uh, an end in transmission of HIV by 2030. So that's only 10 years time. And THT, which Terence Higgins Trust, a big charity here, that's sort of does lots of the things on our National AIDS Trust, so sort of working on a commission to really mm. work out how we can make this this a reality. But, you know, it does seem like that that's a, a realistic prospect. Um, and so finally, you know, we started this, this conversation uh, in 1981. Um, it does seem like we're finally at a place where uh, we could see the end of, um, of HIV something such a massive impact. Uh, on the health of the world? Uh, I, I very much believe in the elimination targets that we have by 2030 as something that we should take as not just inspirational targets, but as real targets, and, and that we should be able to be doing everything to, 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 to reach them. And with the tools that we have and that are possibly in the pipeline, we should be able to get there. Uh, and, and, and the fact that uh, different political leaders recently have announced the end of transmission uh, in 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 their respective countries, including the UK and the US, etc., uh, is, is is very promising, and I think uh, obviously needs to be followed by the investments, by the concerns about those populations that continue to be traditionally uh, not in, not as much included as others. Uh, the key populations, etc. I think it needs to be taken very seriously in, in these conversations and needs to be brought, brought to the surface. So yes, I think um, we must not uh, let our eye off the ball. We must really encourage political leaders and, 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 and that is, I think, the role of the, continues to be the role of, of, of the activists, but also of the medical community 
of 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 the political parties, etc., to really to really argue for that. But I am even a bit more coming from a from a health and and, and I would say social background. I think I would be even a bit more ambitious. Yes, we have to get rid of HIV, and we really have to reduce transmission to the to the bare minimum, and we really have to make sure. Uh, that 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 much fewer people died. 2018, still 770,000 people died. Uh, we, we're talking about these wonderful drugs that we have. How come that still so many people are dying? Uh, we know that 80% of people know their status, but then many of them still don't make it in time to 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 get to that treatment. So while 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 we are saying all of those things, I believe we should really be using the lessons that we have learned through the HIV movement in a much broader sense. Uh, and, and, and really, when it comes to health conversations, when it comes to social services, uh, that we really need to put some of the arguments that we have been using all along with the H movement uh, into the conversation there and, 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 and the lessons learned in terms of community involvement, in terms of community engagement. Um, in, in, in terms of uh, investments in research, as we were saying before, in terms of the commitment of taking research very quickly, translating it into policy, et cetera, et cetera. Because I feel um, somebody who is outside the HIV movement could easily say, how, do you, how can the world continue to make these fairly substantial investments in a single disease? And not more broadly in, into into health and, and and social welfare of people, and I think we can really bridge those two much better than we have been doing in the past, and and and, and universal health coverage, which is, uh, I, I still sound like a a, a a WHO person here, but 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 I believe strongly that the whole notion of universal health coverage. Uh, is 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 an important one, and that's where we also need to position. While obviously looking for focused impact, etc., in HIV, where we also need to position our HIV conversation very strongly uh, now, so that so that uh, the sustainability is given greater opportunities and greater chances. Specifically, if funding from external sources in some of these countries may decrease in the in the future. So this is really really what I feel using the lessons that we've learned in HIV much more broadly, but also seeing it an opportunity for sustaining the momentum and that we have in the HIV response in, in, in all these conversations around UHC, patient-centeredness patient in terms of service delivery integration, etc. If we miss that momentum and those opportunities, we may not be able I think we will not be able to maintain our HIV-specific machinery that is funded in different ways, that is organized in different ways, that is often delivered in, in different ways so much longer. So so for me, that is absolutely critical. Mm. And it seems like, you know, that's not just a pipe dream of yours. You, as you said at the beginning, um, you're responsible for HIV AIDS, but also hepatitis. And, and we also mm. see... You know programs linking HIV and TB because that's such a common co-infection. So you know we are kind of beginning to get there. It seems. Uh, yes, to some extent, but I, I still see 
there's uh, now as uh, everybody gets anxious of whether we're getting our 26 billion dollars uh, that that are needed for the HIV response and so so I think the ring fencing uh, effect is still is still there and you know even you know for for co-infected people with HIV and hepatitis since you you asked it uh, is it, still there we are in a good spot with the HIV movement to get to elimination. And we must not give up on that commitment and we must remain focused. And, and we really need to look at the impact and how it evolves. I think for me, that goes without saying. At the same time, over the next three years, or I would say three to five years, we must, uh, and, and, and this has been said years ago, doing away with HIV exceptionalism, I think we must to get serious about sort of the repositioning and positioning of the HIV response into broader initiatives. And I mentioned UHC, the much more effective linkage to sexual and reproductive health, the much better, stronger linkage to other disease programs such as TB, such as hepatitis, STI, others, uh, even the non-communicable diseases, because obviously this is, this is, this is an important issue also for, for HIV, uh, for people with, with HIV. So, so that positioning is clear. And, and the third message really is we must uh, much better use the very hard gains that we've made and the lessons that we have learned in the HIV movement over the years for the broader health and social context, uh, which, which we are doing very hesitantly. And, and when we do it, often with the worry that by doing it, we would be losing out on, on our HIV specificity and the HIV impact. And I think that 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 boldness is needed to say what we did there, we can do it in other areas and we must do it in other areas and we must broaden the scope. Uh, so 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 this we would be the, the three things that I feel uh, should be the focus over the next three to five years. And they obviously have an impact on uh, the architecture, on the focus, on the way some of the resources are being used, et cetera, et cetera. But that needs to be thought through carefully, but taken forward decisively. You've been listening to Gottfried Hernschel former director of WHO's Department of HIV and Hepatitis. Gottfried ended up leading the WHO's fight against the virus. And if you're interested in becoming a leader, maybe not of the WHO, but within the NHS, then you should probably go to our Leaders in Healthcare conference. We run it in association with the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. And this year it's in Birmingham from the 4th till the 6th of November. If you're quick and register before the 13th of September, you'll get an early bird discount too. So go to leadersinhealthcare.com. That's all one word, leadersinhealthcare.com, where you can find all the details. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more medicine. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.